Good morning, everyone, or whatever time it happens to be, uh, wherever you are. Uh, I'd like to give a good uh, welcome to Julia Krolik. Uh, I met Julia, um, oh, I don't know, a couple of months ago, I guess, when I started um, lurking around a chat, weekly chat that she hosts with Glendon Mello on SciArt. Um, and so I was lurking for a while and then I, I couldn't contain myself and I had to join in and um, it's been great. So we we kind of sit around and chat on um, every week and uh, and also work on our, our art. And it encouraged me to get back into the kind of the monthly hashtags that I'd done for for a while, but had had dropped last year with uh, SciArt. Um, September and October. So anyway, I'd like to welcome Julia. And um, she's uh, founded a couple of really interesting organizations that I'm sure she's going to uh, talk about. And um, anyway, welcome to Planet SciComm. Thank you so much for uh, for inviting me. This is super awesome. I'm excited. I had a, a reason to unpack all of my fancy podcast gear and I feel very special. So I super appreciate it. <laughs> You're giving me a uh, podcaster imposter syndrome or something. I'm like, wow, like I can see that microphone is like way better than mine. So, <laughs> so wait, would that be in podcaster syndrome? Ooh. <laughs> Sorry, it's 10 a.m. for me. Also, I've got a, yeah. I've got a leg up on yeah. everybody. It's so 10 a.m. for I, me as well. <laughs> yeah, I want to know why the podcasting uh, gear is all packed away, though, Julia. That's, That's true. a really fair question. Um, well. My partner and I used to host radio, like campus community radio, um, lots of different shows, lots of different experimentation and a lot of like audio recording type stuff um, and experimental music. And so uh, because we have a lot of music stuff, this obviously lends itself really nicely to having all kinds of recording gear for audio. Um, so yeah, packed away because it's not something I'm up to right now, but because of this opportunity, I'm like, okay, I'll I'll go ham on this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring out the good stuff. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. <laughs> All right, you've you've now set the bar for all of our future podcasts. So, Sarah, Jason, like, man, we need to we yeah. need to step it up. This just uh, isn't up to Julia's standards. Sorry, I mean, <laughs> you're great well, and all. Circling it back to the sire chats, actually. Um, the reason why I have like this this boom setup is because of a person that I met through that like ecosystem, named Mike Henley, who is an amazing artist and. Uh, he always gives me like really good gear tips. So he's the guy I would go to to be like, what are you buying, Mike? I want to know what you're what you're into. Like what iPad thing do you have? What brushes are you using? What pencil crayons? What microphone? Tell me everything. So he recommended this microphone stand. And yeah, he's he because he hosts a show. So yeah, it's always amazing to be part of that kind of like the creator economy, if you will, right? Where people are just knowledge sharing. It's yeah. It's, it's, yeah, think, we, it, it's really interesting too, because I'm not I'm not part of that world and um it's really interesting to listen to Mike and Glendon because Glendon uh, worked in an art supply store um, and is an accomplished artist as well. Um, and so, yeah, the, the different kinds of things that the discussions go uh, very deep into the, you know, brush types and what kinds of hair and um, all kinds of things that are really cool. 
And then we get super philosophical and like meta too, which is hilarious. Yeah, the Sire chats, if you haven't if you haven't joined, are uh, are pretty are pretty great. And I think one thing that's really interesting about Glendon and I's host is that he's absolutely opposed to Web three and NFTs and Word Prompt AI, and I'm absolutely for Web three NFTs and Word Prompt AI. And so it's amazing to have like coexisted as co-hosts in this realm, having such polarized like views on on these topics. It's uh it's actually like. I feel like it's made me like a a better human to be able to have discourse. Like, yeah, it's it's really it's it's really interesting. Can you say more about those? Uh, explain those things for us. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can unpack uh, all of that in in you know a short amount of time. But you know, obviously, I think Web three is as new technology something that people are either super into or they're not, right? For whatever reasons, and so you kind of choose whichever side of that you're on based on whatever views you have. Um, to me, I, I'm fully aware that, you know, at one point people were opposed to the internet, yet here we are. So, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to see what happens with decentralized um, currency. And then, of course, NFTs as, as this this potential for art. I mean, I come from it, uh, I come from like a, an understanding of knowing artists who have used blockchain as their medium way before the NFT craze occurred, um, where provenance was kind of the purpose. So I can see conceptually, if you think about kind of like the professional art world and how, you know, there have been exhibitions, both, um, you know, just shining a light on non-fungible tokens, you know, art ownership. Um, there's a lot of great artists that have worked with that, like in 2016, 2015, 2017, not yeah. at all in the, what the space we know now. Um, Sarah Friend, Sarah Mayohas is an amazing example of creating something called Bitcoin, which basically conceptualized fractionalized ownership of assets before even Ethereum happened, right? So that kind of discourse to me is, is really meaningful, but I think I sit in a very like smaller group of people that have that understanding when they just kind of read mass media interpretations of what's happening in the space. And I actually don't think that necessarily what has happened in that space is all positive either, right? But I don't think that it's completely negative um, as well. But you kind of have to have that broad spectrum understanding, I think, and background about it. So you just made a point of saying that there were some people who were into it and have experience in that space, and then others who perhaps get more of their information from a mainstream situation. Is there sort of an activation energy to be able to get into that space? And does that either background knowledge or energy that you put into learning about it get you more on board? Or do you think it pushes people in the other direction? I think it depends on the avenue of how you arrive. I also think that to me, I kind of have defined five now pillars of why people get into NFT specifically. So the first one is tech, and that's the one that got me into it in the first place, is I'm really interested in the actual blockchain technology. Um, again, as a conceptual artist, if I put that hat on, um, that to me is extremely interesting in the different ways that, like there are NFT projects that have very little to do with financial gain that have everything to do with really interesting use of what that kind of technology means. Um, the second pillar is art, obviously. Some people just like JPEGs and want to collect, you know, crypto kitties or whatever, you know, the meme of the day is, or right? Like it, it, there's a lot to explore there. And there's, of course, artists that just put things on chain that are not making these like mass collections. And then coming into the mass collection side of things where you have like 10,000, like CryptoPunks is an example that I think people know are bored apes. Um, that is like 
community is another one. People buy a membership into this club and they instantly inherit this like community of people that are also part of that. So networking, those kinds of benefits. And then financial gain is a huge one. And I think a huge percentage of people get into it and got into it at this, you know, at the craze that had happened prior to this bear market because they thought, okay, well, this is an opportunity to make money, right? So they don't care about the art or the tech. They really just want to make financial gain. And all of these I think our like a Venn diagram, right? They overlap. I don't think it's a mutually exclusive kind of set of, of pillars where you're just there for one. But I think some people favor kind of different, um, you know, different reasons as to why they get into that particular, you know, NFT space. And then the last one I added was actually a colleague of mine that mentioned it on Spaces. Um, I, we've seen an insurge of people come in because of career, right? They don't know anything about NFTs, but they're a great marketer, for instance, and they get hired by an NFT type company because of that skill set. And suddenly they're thrown into learning about the actual NFT culture and that whole space when they don't know anything about it because their you know, journey in was through getting a, a career in, in Web3. Anyway, so that's kind of like unpacking this a little bit, but I think yeah, depending on the motivator, um, I, I'm very against uh, the notion that you should come in and mint a bunch of art on OpenSea or whatever, you know, waste gas and suddenly think that people will just come like anything. You know, if you put your art out on Twitter, it doesn't mean people will buy it unless you have an audience. So building your audience first and, you know, having actual collectors, like that marketing piece is huge. And I think that was part of the that's criticism I actually have of the space is that I think when people try to sell this, they position it in this kind of way where if you're an artist and you put your art on the chain, it'll just sell out and you'll be successful. And that's just absolutely not true. That's a lie. It's not how that works. And so, see, yeah. This a lot in this mass media, mass media, mass. Yeah. Anyway, where, where the success stories get touted and people are like, I can be an influencer. And you're like, yes, you can be. Can you be a successful influencer? Because there are, you know, a million and a half or probably 10 million or 100 million people trying to be influencers. Mm -hmm. And the people you point to are, you know, the tiny 0.1%. So we should we should go back a little bit, though, because we haven't uh, given Julia a chance to introduce herself properly. <laughs> we just jumped into this Web3 conversation, which is probably a little bit confusing for our listeners. So, Julia... Welcome again. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you got to be where you are? Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, it's probably a good idea to back up for a minute because, I mean, the whole NFT thing has really just been a part of my life for about, I guess, maybe coming on to two years, you know, as like something I do more. And it's not at all, <laughs> I think, you know, the the main kind of, you know, topic of, of what I imagine we want to dive into. So, I guess when thinking about this question, because it's so broad and especially, you know, if I was kind of one of, you know, if I was like a very like an individual with a direct path where it's like, I do this set thing and that's all I do. It's very easy. Whereas for me, it's just like, it's such a weird career trajectory. So I guess maybe like backing way up to make all of this make sense was that um, I came to Canada with my mom um from from Russia at the time it was Soviet Russia so we came as, as refugees after my dad passed away and she had this very much um like you have to do science like science make you money like it's a very it's a very like immigrant kind of you know like yeah no art no and so I was always quite creative and I really enjoyed like aesthetic and artistic um notions but I also knew that 
believing my mom, right? Like, oh, well, that that would not be fruitful. And I didn't understand, I think at the time either, like what kind of careers you could have in like creative, right? You think about it, you just imagine somebody painting. You don't think about like design or creative direction or artistic direction or like so many, or even psychology leading to user behavior, which is still stemmed in creative means. Like there's so much there to unpack. And I mean, in fairness, that's not even talked about in high school either as career mm-hmm. paths, right? It's not it's not conventional. And so for me, um, growing up in, in Ottawa, I was very much like, okay, science, yes, we're going to be scientific. <laughs> it's great. But I had the privilege of living in Ottawa where we have a national art gallery. And that art gallery is free. I believe it still is um, on Thursdays from five to eight. You can go in and you didn't need money. And I didn't have any money. But I had the desire to learn about art. And so I gave myself the like 5,000 hours or whatever by just going all the time and learning about art because I could because it was free and no one can tell me not to. <laughs> like that was just something I wanted to do. And so being exposed to art as a like high school student by going and seeing all of these paintings, the different like rotations, the collection, learning like so much about it kind of gave myself I guess, in art education while I was like heading for like a science career. But that would be the earliest, I think, beginnings of absorbing like aesthetic, if that makes sense, and understanding like what limited understanding I could grasp from like going and subjecting myself in that kind of um, environment. And then, of course, continuing on the trajectory, I ended up finishing, uh, um, you know, like a, a science undergrad. And then I actually ended up doing uh, college in Canada. You kind of do college for applied stuff. And then you go to like do master's or whatever, if you wanted to pursue like, you know, academia. And so I ended up doing um, medical laboratory science and clinical microbiology was like such a huge part of that. And so I think the very first kind of like aha moment for me to blend art and science was when I was on placement uh, for clinical microbiology. Uh, It was out in Victoria and they had a, I specifically requested a level three um, hazard lab and there are only a few of them in Canada. And I know all of you know what I'm talking about. So like it, 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 so what that means for me is that I could grow TV and I thought that that was the coolest thing to be able to for a non-microbiologist, uh, in, in the U.S. anyway, it's a biosafety level, and there are four levels? Four. four. Yeah. Four. So four is like, there's it's a few a long places time since in the I've world, about this. and there's a few places in the world, and these are the kind of like, you have to, you know, be badged and it's Ebola. It's the big suits yes. and the containment yeah. areas and stuff. And yeah. BSL three is like the stuff that's merely like super dangerous, right? Yeah. So like if yeah. you get exactly. infected, like, you will yeah. be sick. Most are level two, and so then like yeah, operational breakdown between there's four BSL levels: BSL one, two, three, and four. One is if it gets on your skin, it probably won't hurt you. So bacillus subtilis stuff from the soil, you know, whatever. It's not going to be awful. Two, eh, it's probably bad for you. Opportunistic pathogens, things that will definitely infect you if you're immunocompromised and things that can infect you if you're not, if you get them into the right place. Pseudomonas aeruginosa um, being a very common example of this. It's a cause invasion of um, how to kill you in cystic fibrosis, but it'll also infect every single tissue type in your body. BSL-3 is the worst bacteria and bad viruses. Mm-hmm. So the worst bacteria, um, TB, tuberculosis, um, coxella bernetii that causes Q fever, um, Francilla tularensis that causes rabbit fever, like things that are definitely going to be real, real bad. BSL-4. Wait, is yes. coronavirus BSL-3 then, do you think? I believe it is a two or a two plus. Mm. 
Mm. Um, it's, I don't think that it requires quite the level of containment as three, but I will look at that while we're talking about it and get back to you just to make sure that I'm not incorrect again in a podcast. <laughs> um, and then BSL four is, um, only viruses because it has to be things that have no treatment and no, um, vaccine available. BSL three can have treatment or vaccine available, which is why there's no bacteria that are BSL four. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And in Canada, the, 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 there's a, a place in like our national, you know, microbiology laboratories in, is in Winnipeg, right? In, in Manitoba. And they have um, level four hazard there. I don't know where else in Canada we actually have that. And I learned this, we can like touch on this a bit later when I get into more about like blending art design science and all of these skills to like become an information designer, because I found myself working with um, the, you know, PHAC, the Canadian Health Agency on a pandemic preparedness plan, ironically, a year before the actual pandemic happened, because this wasn't for influenza. Mm. But it was it was interesting to kind of like get to know the hierarchy of how, you know, healthcare and pandemic preparedness would work in a country. Um, Obviously, I was doing that through design. But yeah, backtracking a little bit. So there I am in the TB lab. Because I this is like specifically like I went from Ontario all the way to Victoria because that is the TB lab I can get into because I just I wanted to you know expose myself no pun intended to more, <laughs> more, pa- more pathogens than you know than I would in uh, in level two and so of course jumping into TB a little bit for a minute uh, you know obviously it's a it's a disease that affects the lungs and they produce so the bacteria themselves produce this like cording factor which makes them like really sticky and what's interesting is they make the most incredible looking slides under the microscope when they exhibit that hmm. and so i was looking at a lot of these and, and staining them right like you and you learn all new stains by the way for this which is amazing right because like when you again like i was gonna say branch out again no pun intended because these are very branchy <laughs> i just all the puns are coming right out i'm sorry guys <laughs> no it's um, good do it yeah <laughs> But it's, it was just such a fascinating thing because you learn all of these new staining procedures, which again, like to me, the most amazing thing as an artist being in this scientific world is, especially in clinical microbiology, where reproducibility is everything, right? And you ignore normal flora, like you learn how to like detect the thing and do it well and do it repetitively. These are patients, right? Like, and so... But then the creative in me is like, what if we messed with all of this? Like, how cool would it be to like just mess with the gram stain or mess with all of these like colors? Like, it's just, yeah. So so that's something that was in the back of my mind. But I took this photo because at the time I had like, I think I had an iPhone 3GS, like this was 2009. And I was able to position it in a way through the microscope that I took this like really ominous image of someone's TV, but it was just, it looked like it came from like Halloween special and it, that point when I stared at that, I'm like, wow, okay, this is both like beautiful, ominous, obviously, and just that whole full circle connection of like, I think the implication of what this means on a human level and a healthcare level and a clinical level to what this means in having the position of privilege of being there and being able to see it and understanding that so many people will never see that, like ever, because you have to have had the trajectory I have had to be standing in a level three lab learning what I'm learning, right? Like, it's just not something you, you know, you go out and experience in that way. And looking up TB images online under the microscope is not something the average person will do. So how, how could I like take that out and show this to them? So I got really inspired. So I left and I came back to um, Kingston, which is where I live. And I said, okay, can I please borrow the microbiology lab in the summertime? Because A, I'm fully trained now, like put me in and B, um, no one's using it. <laughs> and I want to make an art project. <laughs> and they're like, okay, go for it. And so I spent the whole summer 
when I came back, I cultured, like I just went and got soil samples from everywhere where people are in our town, like town hall, like just wanted to like take busy, busy, um, you know, like environments. And I wanted to show, like, I called it microbiota because to me, it was just one of these like projects where I wanted to reveal the unseen for, for people. Cause these are, this is an environment that we all like cohabit and, and, and obviously share, but not one that people are privy to. And so I really wanted to expose it, but not in like a bad way, put almost like spotlight it, put it in its own like spotlight. And especially have like a personal, I think, um, desire to do this because you, you learn so much, like ignore normal flora and, or ignore all of the things that are environmental. And I'm like, but I don't have to anymore. And, and as a result, yeah, I spent, I cultured everything. I documented it all. And I played around with staining, which was the best part because when you do, like, I liced the agar, like I just, I just went nuts on being able to create like this artistic rendition of microbiological staining, mm. which is something I finally had the freedom to do coming out of Clean Micro. And I went up to a couple of local galleries because I'm like, I'm not an artist, but I know and understand that scene having going right back to my experience and being in an art gallery all the time. I had this like vision of myself having a show at one point, And I thought this was a really good, like maybe first step. And so I went and I, the union gallery had a um, Jocelyn Purdy as the, the the director and I went to her and I'm like, look, I don't have an art CV. Like I hardly have a science CV, but I spent all summer working on this project and I think it's beautiful. And I like, can I, am I allowed to even apply to have a show? Like, I don't know how this works, but I want it to work. And I said, do you guys judge based on like acad academic, like, do I need a BFA? Like, how does this work? And she's like, honestly, just write your stuff up, submit your images. That's all you can do. Right. And I did, and I got a solo show, and that was my very wow. first like step into awesome. becoming an exhibiting artist. And it opened up like all the doors of becoming an exhibiting artist moving forward because I had more shows and like honestly, just they like should have, they should have placed a warning with that. But we should warn you that if you do get a show, it's a slippery slope, and you will be a destitute artist within five years. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, it was it's incredible because it allowed me to then have this platform for all of the sciencey thoughts I have been thinking and living and breathing to then, you know, so so to me, like as part of my artist statement is so much about like revealing the unseen or having my scientific journey, you know, like be super expressed in any of my actual like artistic work, especially conceptually. And so what followed, and this is interesting because I still at that time, um, I started doing a master's in, you know, like micropathology, molecular biology, and I joined public health and I was like doing like microbial water quality, um, a lot of like PCR markers, like just deep diving molecular bio because in my mind, I'm still like have to do science, right? Like that's the, <laughs> that's like, I didn't, you know, and so I had these like double lives at one point in my community, like if people met me and they met me through the scientist part and the researchers are like, oh, this is Julia. She does like this awesome water micro work. Or they would meet me through the art community. Like, this is Julia. She's this really cool artist. And I was living these like two separate lives, two separate CVs. I had everything like played out where, you know, if I'm applying to a conference, I'm keeping track of my publications or I'm applying to like the art world and I'm keeping track of that. And like the arts council grants, like it was completely like one person living these two lives. And so finally in 2015, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> Because the other thing I had all along this was was graphic design, which is like a true passion of mine. And so I thought, okay, well, what can I do that will kind of just allow me to to be like this one person that's really good and really analytical and understands science and academia, 
but also has incredible aesthetic and visual communication skills. Like, is there a niche for me? What can I do? And so a number of things happened in 2015. I was able to, like, I left my, like, amazing job as a researcher for public health, which I loved, but I just didn't see myself as, like, moving toward that. And maybe I'll circle back for a second to that moment I alluded to earlier. I think the pinnacle of that decision um, and making the right decision came full circle for me when I went to like have a, a stakeholder kind of meeting about the pandemic preparedness plan documents that I was designing. And we had these little um, these little cards they put on like the table, right? And so you're meeting with like medical officers of health. There's all these people that are coming together because they're, you know, obviously coming from across the country. And I'm in there and it says my name, Pixels and Plans, Information Designer. And I knew in that moment, and I'm like, holy cow, I, if I kept up with the public health stuff, I would be here perhaps as one of these microbiome people, right? Like on that side of it. And if I saw then someone who had that other role, I would be so envious of it. And so I like had this outside of myself moment where I'm like, but it's me. <laughs> like, I'm that person. I get to do that. Oh my God. It was, it was such a crazy, like, I never thought I, that would happen to me, but it did. And it was the wildest moment where I had to like come back because I stepped so far outside of myself and looking at that whole table and being like, whoa okay let's like get back into this but and the only reason i was sitting there is because i had the public health background so you can't like you can't undo that right like it's all part of that one journey that makes sense anyway that was absolutely wild but yeah in 2015 i i left that setting and i started art science which is a nonprofit. And then I started a consulting company with my partner called Pixels and Plans, kind of just doing both of these things. And then for a while too, I um, participated in helping the Data Visualization Society get off the ground as well. So I was on the board uh, for a while. And yeah, it's uh, it's been such an amazing journey to like blend all of those things and, and, and just like create an ecosystem of art, science and design for myself and somehow... Yeah, make it make it make it work. So up until I guess the Web three journey started, that's what I've been doing for like a long time. And so basically, in a nutshell, with pixels and plans, it was kind of like creating almost like Mad Men, like an advertising agency, but for research, where we're not like selling people Lysol. It's like literally about helping to share knowledge to the right stakeholders in the right way that government is either investing in because it's an NGO that needs to share that knowledge based whether it's like substance abuse or pandemic preparedness plan or, um, you know, something that Canada spend money on for, you know, like M health in, in the mobile health in Africa. Like I've worked on so many different broad visual campaigns. And I think that's the most exciting part about it is being able to see all of the different research that's happening across the country and being able to help um, promote that and get it into you know the right stakeholders through visual communication. And that's been really rewarding because if I wasn't doing it, I think I'd be I'd be a creative director for an ad agency. But I love the fact that it's rooted in the selling of knowledge as opposed to the selling of stuff. If that makes sense. That's awesome. Hey, before we get too far, I wanted to uh, put this out there. Spoke about COVID a little bit. Two follow-ups. COVID-19 is BSL-3. What I was remembering is there was a big argument about whether it should be classified as two or three. And so in my brain, it stuck as two or two plus. And it is classified as BSL-3. Please do not try to work with COVID-19 in a BSL-2 app. <laughs> work with it correctly according to CDC guidelines. Make sure that you look it up first. And this is why science is useful. You have an idea. You do your research. If you are wrong, you revise your opinion. 
Patrick yes. just and, um, turned to science. So in corner with Patrick. Yeah, right? Learn something so, in the corner. Just because you think you know something, check yeah. it out. Make sure that you're on track. No, I really like that. Um, Julia, to go back to what you were just saying, I wanted to get that in before we got too far away from it. People Absolutely. were like, oh, what if you don't someone know right now is, 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 is looking at Vodger. Yeah, and just I'm being like, I to go to my BSL2 garage. Should and I go like, to the BSL2 garage I, yeah. or the three garage? Which one should I go to? I well, just, you know, something. Something like that happened not too long ago. There was um, there was a lab that was being cleaned out at one of the big um, national um, research areas, and they found a vial of smallpox. Yeah, hey, this is not shocking to me. Stuff gets lost in the minus this. eighty all the time. I was like, excited about this because, as somebody who was born in Soviet Russia, I have that vaccine, uh huh, uh-huh. and the BCG mm-hmm. and a bunch of other random vaccines. I also have I, the BCG. Mm, oh my god, the Mantu testing, right? Because I was that was I I warned them so many times, but I didn't have any records, and it was the funniest thing. I'm like, please yeah. do not do the Mantu for me. Like, please just don't. It's really bad. Like, you guys, I'm telling you, it's standard protocol, blah blah blah. Because I was working, right? Obviously, they mm-hmm. want to make sure you have all your vaccines. Well. It was like yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that that that. But come on, y'all, blood titers. Julia's blood titers. about is, is a skin test for TB. Um, and if you've had the BCG vaccine, which some of us from other countries have had, who didn't grow up in the U.S., then you test. You will get a positive result for that test. Um, a very positive one. Very positive one. And I, I found this out when I tried to volunteer when I was an undergraduate in in a hospital. Right. Because you have to have all your vaccines. And, you know, I didn't know at the time that I would test positive. So I'm like, what? Oh. How did I test positive for TV? You know what I mean? Like, oh, that must have been terrifying. Like, it, I it knew was. I was ready for it. If you if I didn't know and I saw that, I would have been terrified. I was not ready for it. So I had to get chest X-rays and all all these things oh, right, yeah. to rule out TB. Um, but as an undergraduate, I was just kind of like, what? So yeah. through a yeah. through a lab accident that I will not tell you about in a recording, um, <laughs> I was exposed to a fairly high level of Freund's adjuvant, which is involved in TB vaccine work. And so I don't test positive, but I get real close to a quarter sized. <laughs> and so it's been on the it's been on the the cusp a couple of times. They say you need a chest X-ray. I'll be like, fine, you could do it. <laughs> But this Patrick's is why like, you won't find anything. This is an interesting story. Let's go back 15 years. <laughs> right. I, I'm going to need <laughs> to link in a laboratory. I'm going to need to link this test in the show notes <laughs> so that people can look it up and see what the results look like. Because I don't think it's very common. Like, no, no, you know, people wouldn't commonly get this test. Right. And no, so, they they wouldn't. Yeah. And I also had to get chest chest x-ray just that one time. And then any subsequent kind of follow up, it was in my record. I'm just like, please don't make me do this again. Like, yeah. I don't. It's a really weird one, though, because it can... It it can be basically dormant for mm. for long amounts of time, and it's really difficult to detect. And so, one of the best ways to detect, I, I think, is is basically your immune response. And so that's why the, they do the skin test is because you could be you could have TB for like years and not really have any ill effects, and it could be just ready to. Oh, interesting. To or you're going to have the granuloma, but it's so little that somebody who's not super trained on looking yeah. for tiny bite-sized okay, this is a granulomas. science communication podcast <laughs> not a microbiology podcast <laughs> even though we all you're have some micro background <laughs> yeah that's good. You, have, you have micro so i'll actually bring it back really quick to something that julia pointed out about your beginnings and looking at tb stains um 
something that I found really fascinating about when you pointed that out is um, something that I, I like and have liked about some components of art is that there are occasionally art that deals with destruction. And that makes me kind of happy. I think that that's a cool part of art. And um, one thing that I thought was amazing when you were talking about the stains is that if you look at one of the um, one of the older ways of staining TB, the the zeal 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 neeson stain, however you pronounce that, uh, is that it uses a compound card called carbol fusion, mm-hmm. and carbol fusion is complexed with phenol, mm-hmm. and phenol is very 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 bad for you. Um, it's uh it's it's a compound that you don't want to get on you. It's a component of chloroseptic spray. It's a it's an analgesic. So if you spray it on the back of your throat in incredibly high concentrations, it makes you go numb. But I believe that a carbo fusion stain includes five percent phenol, which will kill you. <laughs> and to use it, you have to steam the fe- the this carbo fusion dye, this fusion wow. dye into the um TB because of how thick their outer situation is it's got all this waxy junk on the top of it and you got to really push this stain in there and part of that is the action of the phenol that allows it to push in there and so you're using these stains that are just so nasty for you just horrifically bad for you and you know if you go back in the history of micro you're going to come up with these other awful stains like acridine orange leaps to mind which Mm -hmm. will get all up in your dna and just do terrible stuff to you And I think it's really interesting that you started off with staining techniques that are so objectively destructive and then made awesome art out of that. Like, do you ever think back and say, wow, I totally lived through all those staining things. Yay me. I mean, I think by that point, I was probably used to it because to be completely fair, having done med lab science, you do histology and the stains in histology are even like crazier. (laughs) For some of that in terms of the compounds used and the preservation of tissue so like it's yeah um but i think yeah in in looking through the lens of of creative the whole time has been so fascinating one of the things that i think ultimately led to me deciding that like the path of being a like a a medical microbiologist or a clinical microbiologist or even um someone who like works on the bench as a, as a tech is um, in the lab that I was in, we had a, a blood culture sample that went off, but the patient was already like gone. They were fine. They came in, whatever, but you still keep those, right? And and so they they were became positive and, and we did the workup on it and we couldn't figure out like which organism it was. It was too weird bacteria because it would not um, stain properly with acid fast. Like it just, we, it, but it was a branching organism. We just didn't know. And I learned about this bacterium called um, Roth Dendicariosa, which is just in some people's gums. Um, and it's not really pathogenic, but to get at specifically identifying it, I had to go to the literature to just find like some random staining procedure that would specifically ID that one. And it was this like weird tube I had to set up with this little like hovering thing that would potentially catch some of the gas that it, this like it was this like very much research right in so isn't it so it doesn't it i mean immediately brings to mind this visual image of a magician or going to their tome of you know like yes. and pouring over it to find and then they go to the apothecary and like i need uh, you know an eye of newt and <laughs> yeah it's why i ended up leaving because i think then it's like well don't ask these kind of things your job is to because i started also poking around and being like well why are we doing this this isn't as efficient as doing this or as some of this and it's like well in a hospital setting it's it's not 
always just about the latest science or whatever. And so then transitioning to research, you know, like R&D in, in micro is so much better for me because then you can ask all those questions and you can explore all the methodology. And that, that moment, I think, made me hungry for it, right? Being able to like do this workup and really not like think about, you know, what's happening on the clinical side of things. I think that that, that was definitely a turning point where I remember like, I don't think I want to work like as a tech or like as a clinical microbiologist in a hospital like type setting because I'm more interested in like all the weirdness that's happening on like the outskirts of micro. <laughs> the yeah, in medical microbiology or at least clinical microbiology in my fairly naive opinion is basically yes or no, right? Yeah. Do they have it or do they don't? Okay, move on. We're done. Very much. So yeah. so we wanted to I wanted to bring this around to some of your art the science um work with um setting up sciart collaborations and i thought it was really interesting reading about this because you talked about experimentation in the paper um that you have we'll link in the um in the show notes um and it was interesting because experimentation is one of those places that has commonality between artists and scientists and i remember going to a conference a few years ago where with where artists actual artists were were there and they were talking about experimentation oh i did this experiment and i was like you're not doing experiments and then i had to be like i didn't say that out loud you know because that'd be not not good but but i had to basically step back and go okay i'm looking at it totally through a lens of of, of science science and and thinking about what i what experiment means but you're talking about like these protocols and may might be protocols for staining or protocols for other other things. Uh, the the article you're talking about um, uh, computational protocols, basically algorithms for um, that the artist was was adapting. And I think it's really interesting to think about uh, that area. And I wanted to, you to talk a little bit about the SciArt collaborations and what you think can come out of those. Like what what's the yeah. setup, and then what what do you think can you know both sides can get out of that. Absolutely. No, it's a really good question. I think backing up um, to how and why art the science like formed in the first place, I think it'd be good because that's exactly, yeah. I think that was the motivator behind art the science was realizing in what I mentioned previously about being like, oh, hi, can I borrow the micro lab? You've got the credentials, go for it. Like that is a position of privilege as a creative, right? To be able to do that. And I get that I put my time into getting the right education to be able to be left alone in a micro lab, obviously. But I think that you, you know how like right now, if I decided this evening that I wanted to learn how to oil paint, like I don't need to be a fave for that, right? Like I could go take a course, buy some things like I, like that is accessible to me, right? So is like, you know, iron smithing. Like if I wanted to learn how to metal smith as a form and do like a sculpture, like giant metal sculpture, I just still don't need to be a fave. Like I still don't need actual educational credentials mm -hmm. to be able to go and do that, like as, cre as a creative, as somebody who wants to do that. But if... I was a creative and I wanted to learn specifically how to grow maybe just like, you know, staff bacteria and work with that as a medium. That's not accessible to me, even though I don't believe you need a BSc or whatever, right? Like to actually do that one part. Like, I think you can take that out and learn that. Like you can scale in watercolor or whatever else that's like a method, you know, based. And well, staff is a particularly staff is a particularly interesting example because you could theoretically just get a Q-tip and swab the area Absolutely. between your lip and your nose, and you're gonna get staff. That's right. But by How the same token, it? how do you grow yeah, it? Right. Exactly. Yeah. But by the same token, should you grow a liter of it in your house? <laughs> right. 
But I think the point is that just like I can learn how not to kill myself using iron, you can learn how not to kill yourself growing a liter of it, right? That's the whole point is that I don't think you still need a four-year academic education to learn how to do that one specific thing. And that's seen over and over again when you have had these mergers where um, you know, you have an artist that's interested, they approach a scientist, they get like a postdoc or a, a tech in a lab assigned to them. They learn how to tissue culture, for instance, right? Like you can do that in the course of six months and be extremely good at it because that's the thing you're focusing on is developing that skill, right? And 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 then I think that that artist is just as proficient in that if they've put the time in to learn it as any person who's in the science realm, as long as it's explained to them and they practice, right? Like that's ultimately what it is. And so at the science at the root was me sitting on several like SciArt, BioArt tech panels and being like, everyone here that doesn't have that formal background is like knocking on doors, asking for those experiences. And I have a whole network of microbiologists <laughs> that if I want to tap into this, I just go and ask and I have that. And so I started thinking like, well, is this fair? Like it just didn't seem quite fair, especially when you wanted like, again, focus in a very specific skill set. And so in thinking about it, I thought about artist residency programs as well, where again, I've seen examples where an artist comes in into the science realm and it's like, well, okay, they'll be maybe inspired by what's happening here, but they don't actually deep dive it, right? Or they, again, they get like someone who's a bit like, oh, I'm trying to finish my PhD, but sure, I guess I'll watch this artist for three months. Like, it's not exactly them being a part of that group of people. And I thought that given the right environment, I wanted to create like a residency framework where it's an immersive residency, where the artist comes in, if it's the right artist too, right? And they can be a part of like fully immersed and be a part of the research group, not an add-on to, not someone's sidekick, but actually be a part of it. And then I thought, well, what is the criteria required to actually make that happen? Like women's, like what, what, what is needed? How long does it have to be? What's actually needed? How does this work? And so the paper that that I that I shared really kind of investigated that. So what we did at Art of Science is we did like this three-year journey, not because it has to be three years, but for us, this was all done like this is all volunteer stuff, right? So like just trying to make this happen. So the very first part was finding a researcher that was like, okay, this is weird, but I'm in. And then finding the right artist who was like, okay, this is weird, but I'm in. <laughs> and 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 then being agreeable to doing an evaluation because again going back to what I said at the very beginning like if you think about evaluation we put the evaluation of this whole thing at the very beginning in fact the whole thing was structured around evaluating it it wasn't an afterthought it wasn't later it was like this is the point like we want to find out about this and so it started with like video diaries like all kinds of like mind mapping from both the researcher the artist the research group and what was really amazing for us to, to discover is that like the first step, the first few days of residency is exactly like if said person, if said artist is working with these skills, what do they need to be autonomous in doing that? Right? Like what is required? Maybe it's a day, maybe it's two days, maybe it's five. I don't know, but like what is actually needed for them to have agency over what they do and they're being welcomed. So like the artist got a desk in the research group, like he sat there every day <laughs> When everyone came in, so did he. Like it was part of that whole experience. And so like, it was just such a different thing than like being added to a process versus being a part of it, right? Like it's not an addition to, it's like, this is now the thing that's happening. And so he gave a talk and 
he met with a bunch of people and gravitated towards, you know, um, a, a student that was doing a PhD, their research specifically, just because it aligned more. And so he watched some experiments, he did his own stuff and ultimately created an artwork. And so then part two of this residency was, OK, well, now that we have this institution, this academic institution in a city, one of the great ways to do psychom is to take it out of there and put it in the community. And so we had a like a at an art gallery, we had an exhibition where we brought both. Like we had a panel with the scientist, with the artist, with someone from the research group, myself and Kat Lau, who did the evaluation stuff for this. And we just talked about the work. We did the survey as part of the exhibit and we presented the artwork. But we also presented like, you know, when you put like one of the apparatus that was worked with on a plinth and light it up, it becomes a sculpture all of a sudden. Right? Like it's really interesting to blur these lines between like what is art, you know, like when someone leaves their bag next to a white wall at a museum and people start taking pictures of it because it's in a museum, like it's kind of funny, right? And and so one of the questions that we asked, like, well, what is this? Is this a science communication product? Is it art? Is it both? Like these are some of the really like interesting questions for us. And then, and this was before the pandemic even, like Art of Science has always had an online digital gallery because I'm really passionate about, you know, online stuff. And so it was really natural already to have that when the pandemic happened, everything was online already. And so we had created a very, but I like interactive online stuff, right? And so between the sand, which is the artwork that was created is very much something you can actually go and play with and participate. And then there was, you know, a survey there as well. So that was the three like phase part of this residency. Phase one is let's get the right, creative was passionate about like really honing skills and working with science and scientists into a lab where they are welcomed. That part is the first piece. And then let's have them create something that is, you know, rooted in whatever their experience was. Let's showcase that to the community that houses the academic institution. You can do this in any city. And then let's take it further and create an online experience so that the whole world can then participate in that. And that's the three phases of, of this like residency and a huge part of this, the fact that I think the part of this that's most important is rooted in, again, allowing an opportunity for someone to hone skills. Because now if this artist wanted to go into another lab or do another thing, they have this as part of their experience and they can be vouched for, right? Like the the, the scientist can actually e even open opportunities up. They can now email someone else, one of their colleagues in a different city and be like, actually, this artist is amazing. They were a huge, valuable part of our group. Let's open up a door for them somewhere else. Like you, you kind of start networking and you and you get that that experience. So anyway, I'll stop there. But that's kind of is, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> to me, this is like you could you could imagine that, you know, like couch surfing. Right. But for an artist, they're just like flitting from research group to research. <laughs> group. So uh, I guess I guess there's a big question that immediately comes to mind. Right. You have universities that have large scientific research programs and that same university will have a creative arts department, a fine arts department, a visual a performance art, whatever. What, what about like, why did it take art, the science to get artists into research labs? And that's not a dig on art, the science. That's just like, I think it's awesome and I think it's amazing, but that's like, why does this academia. already exist? <laughs> yeah, that's a dig on academia, right? Like, why? You tell, me, you, you tell me. Seems <laughs> obvious, right? No, but that's amazing. Um, in in that way, you know, you sound, it sounds like this person is now starting to get the same sort of two resume situation that you had. You know, they're going <laughs> to have an art resume and then they're going to have a science CV. and 
then they'll be able to work more easily in both spaces. And I think that's fantastic. So you, at the end of that paper, you pointed out some, some conclusions that you drawn and some places where this is going. How has it continued moving forward and where is it going now? Because this came out in January and it's, it's been a few months. So where, yeah. where is art the science going? Yeah, that's a really good question. So obviously with the kind of like height of the pandemic and everything else, we were able to push this paper out. And I'm actually really excited because I just yesterday got the proofs of another paper Ooh, nice. that is coming out in the Journal of Science Communication, um, which is going to be super great. Um, so in terms of like, where is art the science right now? Hands on deck on getting this thing out as well. Um, and then after that, I think the idea for us is to visit like, well, where where to next with this residency model? Do we want to do a second residency? I know we're going to be speaking at a few conferences that, that we've applied to. And we did speak at like, there's a knowledge mobilization conference that we shared the findings with. Like, so just getting that information out as well um, and doing some housekeeping stuff. But ultimately, yeah, it's thinking about like, who do we want to partner with to do potentially a second residency and evaluate it again, just to build on that. I think ultimately my vision for this is, is, is twofold. I think um, one, this could be a model that's developed that just is kind of like shop from school to school and that kind of thing. But I also think like either Tri-Council or NSERC, like some of these more like gr governing, you know, granting bodies, right, that are always put the, oh, and we want you to do some knowledge mobilization. And usually what that looks like is, oh, cool, we all get to party at the conference and that's our knowledge mobilization piece. Like you all know, I used to be an academic, you know, I know, that's how that works, right? <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll publish a paper and we'll go to three conferences and that's that's our kt right like we, we've mobilized our knowledge perfect yeah within your industry but how do you get it out right and so i actually think that like a longer term vision would be to have these residencies highlighting some of the top researchers in canada like why not make this something that is just like like to your to your point right like like why hasn't this been done already like when you said that patrick like why isn't this just funded federally and it's just done right like and if that model is adopted great like i've done my job right like moving on like I, th that would be the greatest thing ever and then going to the second paper one of the things that was really interesting to me is we of course have a magazine as well and we've been publishing articles on SciArt. It's quite a body of literature now. I think there's like 400 something articles. And initially when we set that up, I thought, again, I'm, I'm a researcher at heart too, right? So I'm like, well, okay, if we ask the same questions from the creators, because we have this like creator category, then I could see how that would ultimately be a survey. I mean, they're the same exact questions. <laughs> So back then in 2015, I'm like, I think this could be an interesting like MA project, maybe in cultural studies. Like this could be someone's, you know, maybe thesis or a paper for someone. Like, again, just wanting to like empower if somebody wants to do this kind of research, this is a good thing to maybe start. And so we had the exact same creator questions. And we, I mean, at the time we thought, okay, well, this this is good. I was aiming for 50. Then we had 100. Now we had like over 150 for the paper. We used 130, I believe. And so there was a, a person I met um, named Alice Fleakers in uh, when I was out in Vancouver. I gave a talk at Simon Fraser just on like some of the stuff I'm up to and at the science. And she connected with me. And so she came on board and I knew that she was starting a doctorate in science communication. And so I told her about this creator's um, content that I had, this data, and I said, I am a heavy quantitative analyst. Like, that is what I know. I do not know qualitative analysis, but 
I'd love to learn. Like, I know there's so much there. Like, can we go on this journey together and figure this out? So I learned about like, you know, themes and like just so all of this like different like approaches to like how you actually look at like people's opinions and thoughts and do like you know develop themes and investigate and that was so new to me and so interesting and so um what was really fascinating about that paper is we i really was curious to find out like who are the science art creators that we have captured knowing that so many of them come from the professional art world right these are the people that like, I alluded to before, you know, like the blockchain artist that actually is using like the blocks as their medium. These are people that are like exhibiting professionally in galleries, you know, and, and maybe not the conventional like science communication that we think of like through design, which is what I do or illustration or right. Like this is a little bit more conceptual. And so a lot of those people are covered on, on the magazine. And I thought, well, like one, what is their journey to SciArt? Kind of right, like that's a theme. And then what are their internal and external goals? And part of the external goal, there was this curiosity of like, okay, science communication, even one of those? Because I don't think it is. And most people that I meet that are in that world don't give up mm, about somehow doing something creative that would service science communication, like just being completely honest, right? Mm -hmm. And so in thinking about, again, the attitude of like a researcher who wants to be like, oh, I, I want to do psychom. What does that mean? Maybe I'll hire an artist, right? There's some really interesting papers that kind of written about it from the art side of psychom and science, science art. And so that was something we wanted to look at. And so I'm really excited for that paper to come out in the Journal of Science Communication, because I think it's going to paint a really great picture for people to understand that like, only a few people of the ones that that we have looked at have an external goal of communicating science. Like it's just not about that. And I think that's such an important narrative to add to the body of literature. Isn't <laughs> so that I'm amazing? Like given the history, if you look, I mean, at least uh, so I'm primarily steeped in Western history. So please feel free to tell me that it was a different way in another place. But, you know, you had the people who had the money and time to do science were tended to be the same people who were patrons of the arts. Like these two were connected yeah, yeah, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. It's amazing that they're so disconnected now. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, it's just been, it's such a fascinating thing to have been able to like really look closely at some of the, like one of our, our first question, you know, for, for the, the survey, the, the, really the interview question is what came first in your life, like the science or the art? And that is such an amazing question to mm. read. Like that, that is the question that formulated our themes for journeys into SciArt, right? And so many people have discussed like, oh, well, you know, I was in science, but then I saw this exhibit or I was studying art, but then I was inspired by this science museum thing. Or like, it's amazing to see how people got on that. Um, and then, yeah, there was, you know, a number of kind of other questions that helped us, you know, figure out like, well, why are people communicating science? Are they even, what are they really communicating? What motivates them? Why are they doing this? So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, for, for, for that to, to come out. Cause I think it's going to be really interesting to, to have kind of a little bit of discourse around this idea of like, well, is because when you think like I, I sometimes paint like a picture of what does this ultimately look like so there's like if i think about like research communication right like external not internal so then i picture like this umbrella and i call it like knowledge mobilization or knowledge synthesis or knowledge translation like all these buzzwords right around that and under that so you would have like humanities and then you have science and then if you get into science does that become science communication and if you have that science communication branch is sci art 
under that? Because that even, because I know like this is where it's such an interesting, you know, I think exercise in definitions of what like science art is, right? Because it could be a comic, it could be an illustration, it could be, you know, an exhibit, but what's the intent? And that's the part that's fascinating. Like, because if you take like a, a, you know, a photograph from like an Edward Bertinsky collection, for instance, he takes these like, he had like this thing called manufactured landscapes where he took these incredible giant pictures of say like the, you know, the, the, the oil sands or like the dam or all of these kind of like shining a light on like environmental impact, right? But What's amazing about his work is that you could have like the CEO of the dam put that in their boardroom and be like, look what I build. But you could also have (laughs) Greenpeace be like, look what they build and completely different meaning, right? Added to what he's exposing. And I love that kind of art because then you get to kind of really think about that on your own as opposed to necessarily being like fed a message, which is okay. But for me personally, I love that idea of like, you know, exposing something for you to consider it. So it's place under the umbrella. Does that also have to do with the way that it was created? Because the pictures that you just mentioned are art of a science. Whereas if you look at some other art that's been created, um, it is art using science, like the fluorescent bunny, for example, right? And then others make science about art, like doing the math of a fractal painting, for example, right? Does that have something to do with it? Or are they just, are we creating new and different connections? I think there are different methods of approaching creation, right? I feel like like there was, I had a panel once called Paint to Programming um, at uh, um, University of, of um it was York or was it Toronto? I can't remember. My goodness, it's been a while. But I invited a bunch of people to just talk about like creative coding, right? And that notion. And one of the people was so interesting. So he was an engineer um, out of Mexico and they were using like forensic technology and all of the engineering that they would use to assess like blood spatters on a wall to look at Pollock's paintings, right? Because I mean, oh, that's yeah. all splatter. And I just thought, like, what a brilliant thing to do to, like, like now, now a Pollock becomes, like, exhibit A in forensics, right? <laughs> and I never thought about it that way. But, it, like, of course you can take, like, the algorithms of splatter to that. <laughs> Multicolored not? paint man has been murdered. Why Let's not? figure out. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like, to your point, Patrick, like, it's, like, what do you even call that, you know? But it is such an interesting investigation of taking science directly onto, like, old art and investigating it from, you know, from motion um, and physics, right? It's, yeah, it's so fascinating. It's actually why, like, oh, go ahead. No, didn't they do that with um, some of the swirls in Van Gogh's paintings because they looked at turbulence? Jason, you're nodding like you've seen this. It sounds really familiar. I don't know that, yeah, I don't have a citation. (laughs) There's also... There's um, an interesting website. Um, I'll have to find it. Uh, it's about um, one of, I think, it's, is it Picasso? There's a really famous work. And what they did online is they created this giant zoom in version of it by being able to tile like in the browser so you don't load the whole thing at once. But you could look at an x-ray version of it, an ultraviolet light version of it. Like They just gave like a curator's... Like you can be a curator of fine art at your browser by enabling all of these really interesting browser tools. Um, yeah, it was it was super, super fascinating to, again, I gave some talks like 
with my partner called the JPEG is dead in where we like really just investigated like, okay, let's move on beyond just displaying pictures in a gallery. And like, what can you do now in terms of like really interesting interactive ways of experiencing art online? And so that's, you know, in, in foring into that, I remember being really fascinated by by this idea where um, Levin Biss actually did a really cool one on Beatles again, where you, it's almost like you're at the microscope, but the beetles are photographed so close up that you can actually choose the magnification and then the tiles will load. But our talk was more about the technology of that as well. Like how do you actually on the mm. dev side develop these experiences? So someone who has like bad internet in can rural Canada can still have access to something like that. Right. So yeah, anyway, a bit of a digression, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's really, really fascinating to like think about, you know, yeah, the, the, the digital experience. I think it's interesting too, because it ties into some areas of research that I'm close to, which um, I'm involved in a couple of um, molecular atlas projects where they're trying to basically take a human lung and map it in all these different molecular ways, right? So so proteins and genes and transcripts and, you know, whatever. Um, and then put that in a spatial organization. And we've thought a lot about that because the tools to to be able to visualize and explore multiple modalities of data at the same in the same go are fairly limited and fairly restrictive in terms of their visual metaphors. I mean, they have a spatial metaphor, right? There's mm -hmm. the there's a spatial metaphor, and if you're lucky, you might get some kind of plot, right? A bar plot or something. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting to think about creative ways of like, how would you do this so such that it would be useful and engaging and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, I think, I mean, Pixels and Plans ultimately became that for myself and my partner, right? Like the like product service design and data viz and, and dev stuff. It was amazing to kind of create, like one of the projects we worked on is called I Am Getting Vaccinated because it was for a municipality where they they have this artist, local artist in their their city that would put these like bright duct tape messages on buildings. Like that is his art form, right? Like letters, bright duct tape letters. And so he would write like giant things on the wall. Like I've watched everything on Netflix. Like when is this over? Kind of these like like uplifting pandemic messages because no one's going anywhere. People are still driving to get groceries. And so they would mm -hmm. see these things. And then we were commissioned to kind of come up with like, well, what would be the online experience when people could participate in that? And so, you know, there was a prompt of I'm getting vaccinated because, and we created like an online duct tape experience where a person could come in and add their message and submit it. And then it would show up. So there was this like virtual wall, um, but it was hilarious. Like we were drawing duct tape letters and trying to like make it similar. And I, I just, I love that kind of like digital creativity, right? Like it's, you're kind of building participatory artwork online, but also of course it has to function and, and, and display, um, you know, the data that's needed for people to be able to use it. And then like, okay, let's make it work on mobile, right? Like everything kind of has to come together. So it's, it's one thing to do the art part. It's a whole other thing to make an actual, like, you know, an app that is accessible to most folks that, that could use it and have it function and tying those together, I think is like a really fun challenge. So it's interesting that you bring that up because um, in a previous episode, we had uh, Monica Filiu Moher on, and she also worked with a group to do a really great project called, um, Aquinas Cuidamos about 
preparation and dealing with uh, mental health and vaccination in Puerto Rico for COVID, right? So you have this, um, her, her group's work that dealt with vaccination, getting people involved, mental health. And then you have your group's work that deal with vaccination, community involvement, and I'm assuming like some sense of belonging through we're all doing this together, right? But you're taking it from two very, some two different approaches, right? Has the pandemic brought out more of that in the community? Like pushed people more in that direction? I think so. I think there's a lot of, it's actually funny, um, this is without like throwing any shade to anyone, but there was definitely like a fun thing we were laughing about where it was like, no more pandemic artworks. Like, please, <laughs> we're good. We're so good. Like, please, can we stop? Um, I and and I, as someone who has made one during the <laughs> pandemic, like, I, th- I feel like I'm allowed to like self, you know, self shade here for a moment. But it was just, yes, absolutely. There was so many incredible things that came out. There was this one project that's probably my favorite one, thinking back to like 2020 at the onset of this, where people were creating little snippets through their window and sharing them. And you can basically go through and just watch these like little snippets of like from your window. And they would have like the location of where that person is, like not directly, but like at least the city they're in. And it was amazing. You just traveled around the world through people's window views as they're in lockdown. And it's like, it was such a cool thing to just Mm -hmm. see someone's random, like, you know, front of their apartment building with people kind of going in and out a little bit and then nothing because it's the pandemic. Then someone else leaves and then like nothing. It was, yeah, it was, there's so many of those, I think like, because it was a collective experience, right? So to have this, you know, like global discourse happening online was huge. And then of course, social audio came out of that, right? Like Clubhouse and then Twitter Spaces. I spent so much time on that. In my pandemic experience, I also joined this collective that was doing really amazing like parties on Zoom, like incredible social experiences. And again, you know, in we briefly kind of talked about that, you know, panel that I did with the like participatory infographic stuff. Like I love that kind of connection and participation. And one of the things that I got to experience through attending some of these like Zoom gatherings was it was a person that created an experience where I mean, like, let's, as an example, like if I did this now, I could take you, I could share my screen, open up Google Maps. I could take you to like a street or a market, like, because it's street view, right? In somewhere in Russia where I grew up, I could play a Russian song from that time that I would know and take you all on like a childhood Julia journey. (laughs) And like, but it's real. I'm not making it up. This would be a part of my life. And you all would be a part of that. And I got to travel to like the Sotho with someone. And when they turned the corner, they're like, I was here 20 years ago. And look at how like you could hear the impact of them revisiting a place mm. digitally. Mm. Like, I can't, it's hard to describe these experiences, but they are like goosebump kind of experiences. Mm. Cause because it's like I strongly believe that you can make incredible connections online from at least my experience of the pandemic being online and attending like art hives where again you hop on a zoom like this everyone is making i made so much stuff and what was incredible about the art hives that i learned is that people normally would go to these physical spaces where the art hives were held right like you bring your markers you bring your sketchbook you bring your paints and everyone collectively is making but suddenly people appeared that 
never leave their home because of disabilities, whatever it is, you know, whether it's, you know, physical or or something that's more mental health related. There are people that came in that were just flourishing, right? They're like, I have never been able to collaborate with anyone yeah. because I don't leave my house and I'm painting with you guys every Monday. And it's been so wonderful for me. And as a result now, some of the programs that are offered have shifted to doing a hybrid model, right? You can go in person, but they're not ditching some of those virtual spaces because they've opened up so much opportunity for people that didn't have it before. So it, I can't truly look at someone and say that the pandemic was entirely a bad thing, right? When you have these moments of people that actually were thriving during that. And I understand that it's probably a small subset compared to the losses and everything else that has happened. Of course, it's awful. But when you zoom into some of these experiences, it's kind of amazing to realize like what are some of the gaps, right? That this exposed. So do you think that in what you just described, like I heard a couple of points that really struck me about people communicating on this very personal level through these parties. Um, some things that have been in science for a long time is there's a, a perceived slash very real disconnect between the public and the science. I wonder if there is a way to merge these interactions in an online medium with people who are doing science in the time of science. Like you get to hang out with a grad student while they're doing a plasmid extraction. <laughs> like, you know, it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but then, you know, you see their day and they do their gel and they verify it. And then you get to see the jubilation when they finally manage to clone something that's taken three months. And who even knows how many sets of primers, right? Is this a place where this could go? Absolutely. Like in sort of starting to bridge this divide? I don't think the issue is public interest as much as the issue is that scientists have decided that science stores are closed, right? Mm -hmm. like, like, I mean, even when I used to do everything you're describing... I don't know if like I took images and whatnot, but that's just for me or maybe to share with my partner because I'm like, this is what I'm up to and it's cool. And obviously it's not going to end up on the internet. It's my husband. But like, I could I have had a Twitter account and, and showed the work I'm doing? Like, is that like, like there's still like if that's now? Yeah. Right. Like it's changed quite a bit, actually, from thinking about the last decade of what we are sharing. So I think absolutely it could, it, it could happen and it should. It's just that it has to be a comfort level, right? Where people are like accepting mm -hmm. of it from the science side, right? Like it's okay, let's set up cameras. I mean, like uh, Jennifer Willett, who has the incubator lab at the University of Windsor is an incredible example of that. The whole thing is set up for performative forays into, you know, mm -hmm. bio art. They have cameras, they have everything. Like you can just do performance art at the incubator. Like, and, and that's exactly <laughs> the point, right? Like that's where, that, that's, that, that is a call to, you know, have that discourse. Like, why aren't we doing that, right? So I think I think there's an interesting point there, and I, and I got it a little bit from your paper, and I don't know if you discussed it explicitly about the um, Sire collaborations, but it's the it's actually you did you mentioned about motivation and rewards. Um, scientists oftentimes, you know, it's nose to the grindstone because you've got to get the next paper and the next grant out, and other things are a distraction. And so if you're doing art, that's a distraction and you should be back in the lab doing your your stuff. And that is what you're going to get the grants for. And so I think there are places like um, um, uh, Fair Data, um, for instance, where where it's been recognized that there is um, 
it's been recognized that there's a real need for for improvements there and funding agencies have started to include it in their grants. Now, sometimes the the people who are writing the grants and the scientists are paying lip service. They're, you know, hey, I've got this block of text. Um, it'll talk all about how we're going to share the fair data, but does that actually get written into the budgets? Maybe not. But NSF does, um, you know, outreach, as you guys know, right? They They require certain things to be done. And I feel like that could be and I think you alluded to it earlier about getting funding agencies to to put this out as as either part of research grants or as you know special grants. Um, and I think you talked about the the Welcome Fund um, work that went on in the '90s through the early 2000s with um, collaborations as well, uh, artist scientist collaborations. Yeah, and I think some of the there's a paper that was published, I think we referenced it, um, that really addresses um, kind of the the sentiment of the artist from some of those collaborations, right? Like, well, what do they want to do versus being placed in service of the scientist, right? And it's a really, I think, clear line in the sand between what that means that you can do. And I think um, it's kind of interesting, too, because it makes me think of a really fascinating project um, that was done at the University of Guelph. They had one of the first kind of like that I'm aware of in 2009, I think it was residencies in their environmental sciences department. But the the artist wasn't immersed in anything. They kind of just showed up, maybe had a couple of conversations and then they created a work and they made an activism work, which I thought was actually really interesting. They took um, the classic like maple syrup, maple bottles that are in Canada. They're shaped like a maple, like out of glass. It's just like a very like iconic Canadian thing. And they made a shelf in the gallery space. And on the shelf, they put like some really nicely labeled bottles and some started to like kind of turn to their side and completely like kind of come off the shelf. And all of them were actually filled with, with bitumen, right? And and then it, it like leaked everywhere. And so this kind of like discourse on Canada and oil sands all in like packaged into mm. this one artwork. But then... That is a very like strong statement against like a, a, you know a specific branch of industry, but that industry also has science involved, and some of that research is actually about remediation, and some of the remediation is actually funded by the very people that are producing the bitumen. So how do you unpack that, right? Like this isn't as simple as it seems on the surface when you really think about it, because then what happens when an artist comes in and creates that kind of work? but maybe the residency was funded in the first place through the means, right? Of like, maybe, maybe, maybe there's like some, you know, industry funding tied to that. So like, I mean, it's a very kind of specific example in this case, this artist obviously wasn't affiliated with anyone, but that's the kind of like, I think from, this is why art the science is very much like, we don't, we don't do politics because science isn't supposed to either at the root of what science is. It never was. I mean, it does, but let's be real, but it wasn't supposed to, that's not the point. And so for us, like, I don't I, like we 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 wouldn't do a residency with activism art, not because we don't like it, but I think the point is to really highlight some of the science, like the pure science that comes through, rather than focus on the politics of it, which I think is an incredible important discourse. And that example of that work, I think, is actually awesome. But again, it's going back to that like more of a Bertinsky approach of like I'm not going to feed you what I think about this. I'm just going to give you the evidence. And the concept mm. and you can think about it and formulate your own conclusions and i like that a lot um one of the works that that i did called depth to water with my partner stemmed right from research that 
that that I have done where like I spent a long time looking at our aquifer just because I studied well water quality for so long and traced the contamination through it because so many people rely on well water and they get sick. <laughs> and you know, really get sick people that visit those people that rely on well water. <laughs> and because they they're not living on it their whole life and it's, you know, it's incredible when you get validations later for things that you have known for a long time. That stuff is really fascinating to me like just to digress for a minute, my mom has forever been like, if you drink, like Russians drink this like pink manganese solution all the time, um, they just put like, you know, crystals in and, and drink it. They're like, it's good for you, good for your health. And I'm just like, this is such, like, this is not science. Like, what, what, what is this? Fast forward, like way later, and I'm reading all kinds of literature and I'm like, manganese solution neutralizes E. coli toxins. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, it took me. <laughs> like, my mother has known, like, like this has been, I guess, in practice done for decades like decades like since the 40s i don't maybe earlier i don't even know and she has done it and she's made me drink it when i was a kid and there i was sitting with this paper that finally told me that i can believe it like i, I had to question myself too right like <laughs> what point like is it because i'm reading this article that i believe it now or is it because this has been put into practice for so long but no one has written about it i don't know anyway slight digression but it was such an interesting like thing to think about right when you kind of like pin this practice and i think like i had the the privilege of um meeting um i went to the canadian science policy conference as i mentioned and there was a speaker that 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 won the youth award that year and um she talked about her research um which deals with like just a lot of ways that um that indigenous genomics play out and so we became friends and we put together another like kind of unconventional panel that same year that I did the other one was another unconventional panel that I did where I'm like, why don't we have an art show like in a panel? Like like instead of a panel, you walk into the room where the panel is supposed to be and it's actually just an art show. Like who says you can't do that? There's no rules. Like why can't this be possible? And so what we did is I went on site um, to Alberta where they host um, a, a science like residency for um, indigenous folks from around the world. And it's really about like genomics and all kinds of like different approaches of how do you navigate modern science as, you know, someone who's indigenous and what does that mean? And so we had this idea of like interviewing um, and asking like certain interview questions. So I just basically kind of did a documentary where, um, you know, Jessica came up with the questions and, you know, we videoed people answering these questions. And then for the actual like panel at the conference, we put, I put together like these giant two screens and projectors. And so when you walk in, in a dark room, there was like some seating and you could sit down and then a question would pop up on one side and then the people would come up kind of answering it on the other. So you always knew what they were talking about because you could always see what the question was and then it would kind of switch and it was amazing to get feedback from that because people were like, I learned more. <laughs> like how many speakers were there? Like, I think maybe 15 students, maybe 20. I can't remember that got a chance to voice within, you know, like it was a half an hour video that looped over the course of, I think, like an hour or two that we had it installed. And it was just amazing to be able to like, mm -hmm. br like, like you can't bring all these people to the conference, but you can bring them through video installation. Mm -hmm. Like, and you can, and you can, you know reduce it to just like the very important information that needs to be addressed. And I think having indigenous students talk about, you know, Western science policy and their views on it is key at a Canadian science policy conference. So like, 
Absolutely. Anyway, I'm sorry. I digress twice, and that means I don't know how to get back. I'm lost. We, this this whole podcast is digression. Yeah, I mean, really, full digression. I mean, one thing. Right. Well, one Sarah, thing, Sarah, you just you just got the title. The title of this episode is full digression. Full digression. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Um, well, so one thing I've been thinking about as you've been talking, Julia, is this idea of like I'm just going to put the art out there, and then you get to make meaning of it for yourself, right? And I and this strikes me as um something that i think art has maybe the privilege to do but also when i think about science communication because i think of strategic communication right i i'm thinking about that smells a lot to me like a knowledge deficit type model this idea that i'm going to put some information out there and that you are going to make meaning of it for yourself right but We've seen that if I put information out there about a particular scientific topic or scientific issue and just let people make meaning, we get these like wildly polarized views, right? Climate being one of them, climate change, for example, being one of them. And that these like the process of making meaning and making sense of this information is filtered through these individual lenses and, and values that we have. Right. And so I'm trying to like, I don't know if square the circle on how this is different for art, right, or science communicated through art versus science communicated through information. I'm not even sure that that dichotomy exists because science communicated through art could be information, right? And so um it's a really interesting so I think what I instantly think about when you just say it is I remember I gave a talk to some students and the beginning of my talk was me talking as like an artist, right? And then the latter part of my talk was me talking as a designer. Mm. Those are not the same things. Mm -hmm. And that is right to your point of like who's my audience, right? And so I don't know if I would say that it's a privilege for art to be able to do that. I actually think that's the point of art is to be able to do that. It's about form, right? Like if you go right back to reducing it to like art is form and design is form and function. It's like I gave like the funny example of being like, okay, guys, if I went outside of this room in this classroom and I don't know where I am and I needed to find the bathroom and I saw somebody doing an interpretive dance around bathrooms, I may or may not understand like how to find the bathroom through that because it's up to me to interpret right they're just like doing something but if i look at a wayfinding icon whose function it is to tell me where the bathroom is because it's designed that way then i know how to find my way around right mm. i don't think that and i think that's kind of the fine line and that like if i create anything that has a very specific function that's inherent in the work i produce then absolutely i'm going to think strategically about like segmenting my audience how do they communicate? Where do they communicate? How do I actually find them and hit them and make them understand something? But that is the, the point of, I think, those products is exactly that. Like, how do you battle misinformation? How do you communicate something? How do you distill it? How do you, like, make it, you know, correct? Versus if I put an artwork in a gallery, and this is going right back to this idea of, like, exploring artists' external goals, right? Maybe the external goal and the motivation to do the work isn't to communicate anything, right? So yeah, then it strikes me that some of your, that your body of work is composed of kind of these 
we always think in dichotomies, so I'll just go ahead and stick with that, <laughs> of these two groups and classes of things, right? The the work that you've done in design with um, pixels and plans, where you're working for uh, CHPC or some of those infographic type um, pieces of art, we'll link these in the show notes. Um, but then also your installations, and they have very different objectives, and they have very different mm. goals. But to this point, because we are a science communication podcast, and we've been thinking about this a lot, this idea that um, science communication in many of its forms, right, has to be strategic in some way. If 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 we decide that we want to change behaviors, change attitudes about something, right, among public audiences, it has to be thoughtful in some way. And so it strikes me that some of your work um, fits within that space, but then other of that work is lives maybe more in an artistic space where it is work just to be, right? Absolutely. And, 100%. Which I think is, is fantastic because there is this kind of thoughtfulness around, you know, this. there's a strategic goal and a tactic behind this function, as you've called it. And then there's also this just art for art's sake right it's creative that, freedom in, yeah that that's what it is science, right? it's just pure creative freedom it's having that agency to be able to like to create because i feel like creating mm -hmm. and not thinking about the actual audience or the intent and and having the freedom to do that i think is what drives that part of it but being fully aware of like what is intended to actually have like meaningful communication and how to even measure that like an example would be like I worked on that pandemic preparedness plan where I made this like giant academic poster and we actually called it an info poster because I didn't want it to be like an academic poster because that's brutal, but it could be an infographic <laughs> because that wouldn't be taken seriously if it's just too infographic-y. So I designed this thing that's like right in the merger of, of both of those. And then they were taking this to various conferences. And so they wanted to create this like little brochure, right? Just this little pamphlet. And I'm like, look, you know what happens with conference pamphlets? They go in the recycling bin. Like, let's just be real. Nobody cares. So I thought, well, what could be done where somebody may want to actually keep a product? And then I thought, well, something that's that's beautiful or artistic or has like some kind of like a physicality to it. And so I suggested to them, I'm like, I know this is crazy, but can we make postcards? And I'll design like a beautiful watercolor influenza mm. virus and we'll get heavy cardstock. Like I'll tell you guys how much you need like to make it like this thing that you wouldn't like you would feel bad throwing it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> and on the back of it, guess what? QR code, pandemic preparedness plan, da da da. like hit them with all the info. Who cares? And like people love those cards. Right. Because mm -hmm. everyone's like, where do I get the virus card? Like that yeah. is such mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. Right. And that's exactly like that has a very specific function. Right. The function and the intent there was to make sure people don't throw something out. How do you accomplish that? Right. Let's think about the criteria that would make a tangible product that's hard to throw out. Like that is very deliberate and, and very purposeful. Whereas maybe sometimes the intent is to have people throw stuff out. What if that's part of the concept of the art, right? Like that's the creative freedom to explore when you don't have like an audience segment that you have to hit with information. And I love being able to, I think do both. That's what I think if I get too heavy in the client side, right? Mm -hmm. When I'm meeting certain criteria all the time, you lose that creativity, right? Like if you look at someone like um, Mary Blair, who's a really accomplished Disney illustrator, right? One of the the like things that, that, that she talked about is this notion of like when you are no longer like allowed that creative freedom because it's constantly stifled by like client requirements, you lose that artistry that you have within you, that like flame of exploring mm. 
absolutely all possibilities mm-hmm. if possible. And so I think that's how I balance it. Like I can sit down and create these very much like intended products to your point, Sarah, that have a very clear science communication function. But I can keep my sanity in doing that because I know I can sometimes install an exhibition that serves no function specifically, or maybe think, just to ask more questions. I even. There, like, yeah, I, I was going to say, I think that I think there are inherent and in whether or not they're whether or not you're thinking about those and strategic strategizing. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's still early. I need more coffee um, about what what that is but you know those kinds of things are to like to engage to promote wonder mm-hmm. to to uh, to promote questions and i think those are very real kinds of outcomes that you might be looking for and i think there are probably analogs uh, in science communication which i would say something like uh, elementary school outreach it might be to teach about something specific right oh germs are bad and we want to yep. you know you want to wash your hands all the time but i think there are other things that are more about like hey kids love to get their hands dirty and they and they want to be involved in science and it doesn't have a kind of end goal of like these kids will all you know yep. um leave yeah. knowing this fact right we want them to change their behavior this way it's more like you want them to be like Science is kind of cool and I like it and I am more curious about it than I was. Well, well so this is a, a really good um, that analogy you just gave, Jason, is a really good one about a conversation going on in science communication right now around basic and applied sciences. Right. Because you can see how with with communication of applied sciences, there can be some targeted behavior change, attitude right. change, some kind of targeted goal. But for the basic sciences, there's a lot of questions about what that targeted goal might be, right? And some of the the ones that have come up are around awe and wonder and curiosity, right? Which is not, not, not a behavioral goal necessarily because you're just sort of trying to cultivate these ideas, right? Um, and so it is, it is a very analogous uh, conversation in science communication. Um, and I'm, I'm realizing we're, we're quite a bit into this conversation and I have just barely chimed in. I want to apologize because I'm a little bit fuzzy today. I'm not feeling super well. And it, it took me about an hour to articulate those thoughts that I came up with, Julia. Um, so Sarah has you. entered the chat. No, I know. Thank you for your patience. Um, no, it's amazing. I hope you feel better. Um, I want to say two things and I have ADHD. So I made a little note there for myself because I forgot I, if I if I go too far off the mark, I do have to come come back. And so before I forget, um, in talking about wonder, I wanted to bring up this example because I think it's, this is like, again, talking about intent to communicate science or just like doing it as a byproduct of just creating something. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Contemporary Museum in Montreal, when my son and I uh, traveled to, to Halifax, we stopped over um, and I took him in and I'm like, well, let's see. He was, I think, six at the time. And I was curious to see like his take. And there was this exhibit and it's right in the middle. They have this giant atrium. So it's like really tall. And from the top of this thing, they had suspended this chandelier full of really round bulbs. There was at least like 200 of them, right? All in different like configurations. And right underneath it, there was this little platform. It almost looked like an old school scale that you step on, except it just literally tells you to put your hands on these little handlebars and just kind of like, you know, place your feet there and hold. That's it. There were no instructions, nothing, just very clear. Like it was so obvious that you hold it. And my son came up and he put his hands on it 
And it took like a, a second or two. And suddenly the whole thing went, because it was just kind of flickering like this, all the different bulbs. And suddenly the whole thing just went like this. Oh, heartbeat. Mm. And, the mm-hmm. whole, and the whole room stopped because, because there hasn't been a six-year-old that oh, has entered that cool. space. And a little young boy's heart is really fast, yeah, right? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And usually our hearts are not as fast like Bum-bum. that at all. Like, like half of that. Bum-bum. So they're yeah. used to seeing this and they have not seen this thing like, up like this before. So first of all, he understood instantly what was happening because how could you not understand what's happening? You're right. holding it and you're like, whoa, right? It's such like, that is science communication that without, great, like tell yeah. me you're communicating science without telling me you're communicating science. Like, that's, <laughs> that is an example of that art installation. I don't think it was its point to communicate science, but we talked about heartbeats and mm-hmm. conductors. Mm. Like, think about the conversations that started, right? Mm-hmm. But to everyone else around, they're like, oh, that's a child heartbeat. That is so <laughs> cool. Like all the curators and the people that are just, you know, like at the reception mm-hmm. desk, right? Because it's, yeah, it was such a cool experience to to see like something so simple, but yet mm. both adults right. and kids would be really captured by it. And then- the second thing I wanted to do, and I can't share this yet because we're in proof mode with this paper, but I thought I would share some of the maybe journeys and some of the things that we found in this paper, just because we're talking about motivation so much behind science communication and science mm-hmm. art. Um, so in our like you know thematic kind of maps um, for journeys into sci art, kind of the most common one is um, considering art and science as two distinct disciplines, and then ultimately like merging them somehow that was a big theme that came out and then childhood entry into science art was 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 a theme mm. um and then there is science as a muse for art academic paths and then through uh, personal contacts somebody introducing them into a discipline and for some of the kind of goals i i thought i would share some of the external goals that we found so the 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 biggest one is to reach and connect and it has some sub themes um and so in the sub themes, um, we have engage or you know invite participation, raise awareness, inspire audiences, critique and problematize, and spark dialogue. And then another kind of um, hierarchy was to reveal the unseen, and a part of that subset was to capture beauty. And then we have a subset here where an external goal was to communicate science, and then the, that that spreads into make science accessible and teach share facts. So I just thought I would I would share a little bit of of some of that. And I also have an internal goals one. Um, and, you know, that that those kind of main ones are art as a process, art as a reflection, art as community and art as coping. So I'm excited for this to come out because I think it'll really be an interesting conversation around, you know, why SciArt, why SciCom and exploring some of that. But mm-hmm. yeah, definitely like mm-hmm. while ScienceCom is on, there's an external goal. It's actually the smallest piece and interesting. after the rest yeah. of them. That's, yeah, that is interesting. Um, it also strikes me that your route to this career is very, it's unconventional, right? But also something that we hear a lot because there is no direct route to professionalization, especially in the art space and this kind of STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math, right? Um, and in science communication in particular, professionalization is somewhat of a challenge because a lot of professional science communicators who do this as a job now are, I have a PhD in something unrelated to science communication, and this just is my passion, and that's what I ended up doing, right? And so it's an ongoing conversation that I think hopefully this piece will add to, and it'll be it'll be really enlightening, be 
good to open those conversational doors, I think. That's a really good point. I mean, I've seen um, the job title information designer pop up more and more. Mm. And that's something that, you know, like I've been for a while, but I've not heard yet, like formally as much. And it's been really cool to see it come up as a as a, like a, a formal job description. I'm like, well, yeah. what do I do? Tell me more. Like, you know, I, yeah. I'm like, curious. What, what has somebody in HR written about this? Right. This is that's kind of fun, right? And I've never, I've never heard that job title, which I think, Mm -mm. I mean, it strikes me that that even like universities, right, could have information designers. I mean, they have public information officers. These are very analogous. But instead of writing press releases, Mm -hmm. um, like it could be information design, right? And I've been thinking now that I have to get in touch with you after this is all over because I have my own projects that require an information designer because part of what we're doing is trying to share our research out, right? And so it sounds like Pixels and Plans does that. And, you know, where... Yeah, really where good. are where are yeah. people like you and and right to do that for research institutions for you know um and I think like I'm really excited I think to hear you say this idea of like it's not a conventional career path because I get asked to talk about it often and it's one of these things where I can't say that it would work if I didn't have a scientific background as much as I have a creative mm. one because and maybe that's not something that everyone pursues professionally but for me like yeah I'm a professional researcher which means that if someone hands me a data set there's there's implied integrity that's there right like I, it's not new to me to understand how science has worked as a published researcher right like that that's inherent in this practice of information design that there's integrity and in data all of that right statistics like this huge part of it but then there's that huge creative part of it, the understanding of how to actually do like, you know, that like psychological engagement of audiences and that creativity. And how do you make it in a way where sometimes it's so, it's such a little step, like such a tiny step. And sometimes it could be a huge step where it's like, what, we're making postcards crazy. That's a big step for us. And every organization and every researcher is going to have like a a scale, right? A comfort scale of how far they're willing to push. And that is the sacrifice in not being in the advertising industry, right? Because in the advertising industry, go nuts. Here's a giant budget, make it work. We'll see where the chips fall, right? Like, but in this case, no, I, I don't get to suggest the craziest things or I do. And then of course we land on something. But I think seeing, you know, like some of these things play out where you actually you know, enable an organization by having them connect with their audience, having the research displayed or getting, especially like I get to do a lot of um, reports on grants, right? Like where I create like a one pager graphic that's both Mm. quite rigorous in reporting finances. But if that helps them get more funding for different programs that are important, then I've done my job, right? Like that's the exciting part about it is like, this is actually important for a stakeholder, potential grant funder to be like, oh, okay, I see exactly where my money went. And I see exactly who this impacted, Mm -hmm. both regionally, because we have a map and whatever else that's required. But like 65 page report isn't going to do that. Right. So how do you how do you really get that? But I love that even though there's constraints, I think that there's a way around all of that. And I think that's probably the most exciting part is like, how do you make something really awesome within all of these things that we still have to meet? Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. I'm surprised that like every venture capital firm that works in science doesn't have someone who does that. Like, honestly, you know, as soon as you started describing it, I thought I'm surprised that places like, you know, big journal hubs 
Elsevier, Taylor and Francis, MDPI, et cetera, don't have these people because they offer a service to edit an article for grammar, for ideas, you know, et cetera. I'm surprised that there's not a corresponding surface for um, not just figure creation, but if you have to have a graphical abstract, what you've just yeah. described is a graphical abstract for financial support. Why not Absolutely. have that same, you know, I can tell you why from what I've seen. So I intern graphic designers from our college, right? They come to me to do their placement. And mm -hmm. I specifically say like, you have to be interested in communication information design. And it's one of these things where like, so they come now like uh, with beautiful design skills, right? But they don't understand the narrative of science yet. Like it's it's both, right? And I think that this is exactly like, how do I create a bachelor information design where we're going to do half science and academic rigor and understand all of that and like key message derivation? Like, how do you really get at the information? Because you need to pull it before you can design it. Yep. And it's a two-step mm. thing, right? And so it involves that like subtle nuance that I just can't, it's, it, it is, it's why like it's hard to scale pixels and plans because I can't replicate more Julius, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. right? Right. Right. So how, how can I? So I've worked with it, like, and I've hired some of my interns that had a knack for it, but it, it, it it's like, so then I am starting to think like, okay, well, what, what could I do to help like create more of this kind of like skill set, right? Where you, where you can take something that's like a whole academic paper and actually, yeah. So this strikes me that I've I've been trying with a faculty member in surgery who is a sculptor. He has been trying to get this like, um, and it's not quite art, but it's sort of it is it is art and science and communication all wrapped up in one. We've been trying to get this class that's cross listed in communication in a science area and in the fine arts college, right? To bring people undergraduates from all three disciplines together because there are conversations like it's almost like talking in a different language right um, yeah, you're reading an academic yes. paper but trying to translate it into this artistic thing and so um that class hasn't worked out yet because of the pandemic thanks covid but you know because you can't it's it's hard to do online i would love to have more conversations julia about how you know you seem to be quite a proponent of online spaces, and I am as well, but there's something something about being in person, having these conversations in person and seeing the person across the room from you, right, for, that that is missing, obviously. And and so I I think the the sort of scale up, how do you create more Julia's, right, is 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 a great question. Um, and is a great question for for professionalization because this information design area i guess we might call it is is clearly very important right how do we how do we get more julia's maybe that should be the yeah. name of the podcast <laughs> well, I, I i think i mean you know to kind of wrap up in reflecting on all of this um i really think that you know something that i've been doing is just to kind of lead by example right like you know i've developed certain workshops and i've given talks and i feel like if people are inspired it's you know why not take that design Coursera course, enroll in it for free, audit it and, and see how you can shape up your design skills if you're a PhD and now you're like not interested in academia per se and you you want to hone in on that, right? Like I think that I think there are more Julias, but how do you also empower more Julias to find work too, right? Like it's it's because yeah. I think it's yeah. I think it's twofold, right? It's not just that there aren't those skill sets. I think I'm not the only person, you know, in psychom that can can do this, but I think it's also like how do you how do you give them business sense to start a business or how do you how do you get right. them to come out and like the reason why I was able to 
build a career in this is because I would go to conferences mm-hmm. and do unconventional sessions. Or I think I'll end with this. If you're listening to this and you're trying to figure out like, how do I start my own <laughs> business or how do I, how do I do my own thing? Here's my, here's my, what we call alpha in the web three space. Here's my, here's my stuff for you. Um, what I did is rather than going to conferences where my colleagues are that do the same thing I do, which is okay if you want to share like latest knowledge, but that's not where your clients are, right? Because 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 right. no fellow data viz person is going to hire you to do data viz and right right like that's just not how it works. So I started going to conferences and pitching design and communication sessions in places where my clients would be. So whether it's a science conference or whatever, like a, a government conference, anywhere where I would think people would need my services, what I would do is I would develop a session and teach them how to do what I do. And people think that's counterintuitive because like you're giving away your stuff. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> a, I'm showing them I'm an expert in this. I'm teaching them to do it. And and 90% of the time after this session, if someone engages with me, it's because the first step is, can we hire you to give this session to our comms team? And then now that you've taught them all, we don't have time anyways. Can we hire you to do it? <laughs> right. That is, and that it's is, hard. And it's that hard. That is my alpha for you guys. Like that is, Letting... so do not be afraid like to give away your skill set because at the end of the day, not many people will invest the time into actually developing it, but they'll appreciate okay. that you have it. And you'll, you show that you have it. Absolutely. True. And with that, I would really like to give an incredible thanks to Julia for your time insight, your great thoughts, this journey and where it's going. Everybody check out Art the Science, check out Pixels and Plans. There's links in the show notes. Thanks again and have a wonderful rest of your week slash weekend slash time. And we'll do it again next time on Planet Psychom.